Well, good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Welcome uh, to Bible study tonight, Pastor Kurt, Pastor Steve. Welcome, those of you who are in the room, those of you who are joining us online tonight. We are glad uh, that you're here as we uh, continue our Bible study on the places and the people that Jesus uh, found himself in and who he interacted with. We've been a couple of weeks on the Pharisees, and (laughs) I don't think we're going to finish tonight. So uh, we're going to have a full load of the Pharisees by the time it's all done, but it's been really I found it been very helpful, and I hope it's been helpful to you. So normally how I begin our uh, studies each night, of course, is I, I read, help us to pray and read through a psalm. So I thought I'd do something a little bit different tonight. I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, the holidays are just around the corner. Did you know that today is, today is the 299th day of the year? And so we're on the uh, the backswing of 2022. Woohoo! Kurt can't wait for it to be <laughs> over, right? uh, for sure. And uh, but anyway, um, holidays are coming around the corner, and a passage that you will hear around Christmas time more often than not is a passage from Isaiah chapter nine. One of the things that we have mentioned, or Pastor Kurt has mentioned a couple of times the last uh, few weeks, is that the Sadducees, and we haven't even talked about them really, but the Sadducees, they, o- they only held to the first five books of uh, the Bible, uh, the Torah. The uh, Pharisees, on the other hand, everything in our Old T- Testament, they would have embraced as Scripture. So the Pharisees, the, uh, especially the rabbis that the Pharisees would, would have been connected to, they knew Isaiah chapter 9. Some of them would have had it memorized. And so some of the stuff that we're going to be covering, hopefully we'll get to it tonight, makes you scratch your head. Were they really listening? Remember kind of our leading comment about the Pharisees, which indicts us too, is that oftentimes we are blinded by our own what? Certainty. Right? And so it's just curious that they would have known this passage, loved this passage, been looking forward to this day, and yet they seem to have missed it. And that's the point. May we not miss it as we head into the holiday season either. So let's bow our heads and let's pray through together Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoiced before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. 
For in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for the burning, will be fuel for fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Come, Lord Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, more Pharisees. The more I study Jesus in particular, but Scripture in, in general, the more depth the more beauty I think I see. I've got an incredible job uh, that I get to study Scripture for a living. That's one of the best parts. Um, many people get to dream about it, but, but I get to do it. So if I am interested or, or, or want to dig deeper, um, there's, there seems to be time to do that. But the more I do that, the more I really appreciate nothing in Scripture is fluff. Nothing is there just for ambiance. And the fact that we're having to talk about the Pharisees as much as we do, I think makes a point that we don't want to miss. Jesus is going to have a conversation tonight with Nicodemus, one of the leading Pharisees. And it's, it's a humdinger of a conversation. I know you've heard it about rebirth and being born again. But after a while, I wonder why, why does Jesus seem to act the way that he does towards the Pharisees? At times, he really seems to seek them out and then vice versa. And the impression that I really want to give you tonight is that I think Jesus knows one day we would be sitting here and listening to these conversations. And the mistake we can make is just to see them, the Pharisees, as the bad guys. It is so much more involved, so much more detailed, so much more nuanced than that. I think one of the reasons he's really having this conversation is because of all of the groups that we know existed in his time, the church is most at risk of becoming Pharisees. No doubt. We really have to check ourselves and understand Jesus did not come to set up a new religion. He didn't come just to give us new rules and say, this is the new administration, we're all going to be Christian now, we're all going to do it this way. We can read that when we're kids, but there is much, much, much more that he's trying to communicate. And we have, as humans, a hard time with that communication. There are pitfalls and traps and dangers and instincts within us as religious people who love Scripture that can lead us into very dark places. And I think as Jesus is always doing, he 
makes a lesson about grace with a Samaritan. He teaches compassion while dealing with a Roman. I mean, these these details, these people are part of his teaching banner. Uh, it's real life that he's he's bringing forth. So we have to appreciate what he's doing with the Pharisees is the same thing. Almost in a sense, they are a living parable he's trying to get us to process. So we've talked a lot, probably more than you wanted, about the Pharisees. Uh, try to remember, uh, they don't call themselves Pharisees. They're the parushim, the separated. Remember, on the one hand, they're very much a progressive liberal side of Judaism. They are not going with conservatives, the Sadducees, and wanting their country to return to temple worship like it did before the exile. They think this process of rabbinic study where the most learned will instruct the people on how to keep the Bible live, they should be the leaders in society, not the priestly class, not people born into certain families. So this was, this was revolutionary. But they are a middle class, very populous group, uh, very wealthy generally, not as super wealthy as some of the priests, but they're all businessmen. They do have, their claim to fame is the ability to influence the populace. The Romans even will fear them to a certain degree for this. They do not have a voting majority in the Jewish Congress. Uh, We call it the Sanhedrin, the Knesset. Uh, They are a minority party, but they can raise enough of a stink, uh, raise enough of a ruckus that, again, they give the Sadducees pause. So they almost have a kind of a veto power. One of the other functions they do is sort of vet out the crazies. One of the things that's happening in the first century, to a great extent, is people are being crushed by the Romans. Uh, Taxes are just killing them. Their culture is being inundated. Remember, the, the, the Pharisees might be progressive on one side, that they'll accept rabbinic Judaism. On the other side, they're very conservative. They don't want Greek values or Greek thoughts. So they're hard to sort of classify, uh, as, as most ancient groups are. But... They they are fearful. They, they want the Messiah to come. They want as many people to practice the laws of Judaism as they can. So they're constantly giving steps and practical advice for people to read the scriptures, understand them, and act upon them. They're worried about false messiahs for a number of reasons. There's a lot of them. And some night when we have time, which we never seem to, I'll take you through all of the messiahs that showed up within about a 60-year time span of Jesus. And you would be shocked at the number and variety of them. Now, obviously, they're all false messiahs, and it's one nut job after another. But the Pharisees intentionally go out and seek these people. One, they're looking for the messiah, but they really are vetting them. They're... They don't want to lose popular support, so a Messiah figure, as Jesus will demonstrate, will be a great threat to them. So you can make the assumption if they're going out expecting and looking for the Messiah, that they would know passages like Isaiah 9. Absolutely. Like, because this, like, the, it tells us he's coming. And one would think, oh, he's going to be coming from Galilee. So maybe we ought to go look for him there. But we'll see. What one of the things they'll do, Steve read that passage, and I know we hear it at Christmas a lot. It doesn't say verbatim that a prophet will come from Galilee, does it? 
It didn't say it in black and white. And so they'll run around and say, well, it never says. There's never a prophet from Galilee. The Bible says that. Right. I mean, have you encountered people like that that in a sense can quote the words to you but completely miss the meaning? Um, if we didn't understand Jesus, some of the things that we read in Isaiah, he will have a government. And this government will not have an end. Well, that certainly sounds like we're overthrowing the Romans, doesn't it? He's government. How can you have a spiritual government? I never heard of that before. Well, you've got to listen to Jesus. The point of all this is not that they're just stupid. The point of this is that we learn from their mistakes and we don't end up like them. Um, That's, I think, what Jesus is after. So just to take a look at this, Acts chapter 5, this is the church is getting off of the ground. Jerusalem is in a bad way. But they're, they're trying to hold on. The, the Pharisees end up being pushed out by the zealots. The zealots are the freedom fighters, the, the military resistance to Rome. Uh, the Sadducees will pretty much run with the Romans, and the zealots will drive out or kill the Pharisees to take over. So it's, it's a, but we're, we're about 30 years in the future. Uh, when this is happening at Acts, we still have time, but it's very tense. So they've got uh, Peter, and they're trying to figure out what to do with him. Uh, again, they're not sure. Is, is he a Jew now? Is he something else? We don't know. But in verse 33 of chapter 5 of Acts, so Acts chapter 5, verse 33. At this, the high council, the Knesset, was furious and decided to kill them. But one member had a different perspective. He was a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, as I said, and this is good to know if you know anything about the rabbinic world, there's two extremes. There's two poles. There's two schools of thought. One is the Hillel, and this is the Pharisee go-to guy. Every rabbi of a Pharisee branch has to sort of connect himself to Hillel. And so Gamaliel, who's studying under Hillel, has that pedigree. They are the most progressive of the rabbis. And by that I mean they want to be as modern as they possibly can interpreting scripture. So they're very easy when it comes to divorce, or they're very practical when it comes to Sabbath rules, things like that. On the other end of the spectrum, the most conservative rabbis come from Shammai. And this is generally more practice in Galilee. Shammai, say, if it's not written in black and white, we don't believe it. Uh, now, they, they, don't, they follow all of the Bible, but they're very literal. Uh, so, for example, they're not in favor of divorce. The, the God hates divorce kind of people. So it, it, it's sort of the, the two poles. But the more progressives under Gamaliel stand up and say about Peter. Um, so this Gamaliel, who is an expert in religious law and was very popular with the people, he stood up and ordered that the apostles be sent outside of the council chamber for a while. Then he addressed his colleagues as follows. Men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was a fellow named Thudas. This is a Greek rendering of Judas. Even though we always associate Judas with traitor, Judas is the George Washington name of the Jews. There was Judas the Hammer that back... uh, 
in the early Hashomi and the early king period who revolted against the Greeks. So every mama wanted to have a little Judas that was a little fighter, a warrior. And then Judas Iscariot comes along and ruins the name, right? But here, here was this guy named Thudas, Greek version of Judas. And he pretended to be somebody great. Now, one thing about the Jews, especially when it comes to God, they'll always be somewhat circumspect. We don't say kingdom of God. We say kingdom of heaven. It's offensive if you use God inappropriately. So read between the lines. What does it mean he pretended to be somebody important? He wasn't pretending to be the mailman. It was a little bit more than that. He was... Exactly. He was claiming to be the Messiah. About 400 others joined him. That's a pretty good following. How many does Jesus have? Yeah, he's he's in the hundreds uh, when it comes down to it. Uh, at the very end, he's he's down, right? Um, but this guy had about 400 followers who joined him. But he was killed, and his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, ooh, bell should ring there. We, we know when this was, right? When was the time of the census? Jesus was born. Uh, there was Judas of Galilee. So again, we got another Judas. And where's he from? Oh, wait a minute. This stuff is starting to overlap a little bit, right? Uh, we've got another Galilean. This is, they're renowned for revolting, for fighting. Uh, he got some people to follow him too. But he was killed too. And all of his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. If they are teaching and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is God, you will not be able to stop them. You may even find yourself fighting against God. Uh, Prophetic words. Um, Did this little thing that Peter and gang got going, did it last? What's the last I heard of it? You know, yeah, it's still kind of a thing. It's the largest religion our planet has ever known. More people today follow Christianity than anything in all of history. So it's not just an American thing or a Western thing. It very much is the destiny for humanity. But the Pharisees see themselves as gatekeepers for this. They're going to weed out like they did with these other guys to sort of make it known. Who is doing all this killing, by the way? The Romans. Yeah, that sort of goes without saying. You don't have to... I always tell this story because I love it. But um, there's another one that's about this time. He's before Jesus. And he said he had the power to reattach heads. And she has this great following. And, you know, Josephus tells us he did it. People would get their heads cut off and wah, he, he could put them back on. Amazing. I bet you I'd follow somebody that really could reattach a head. I mean, that's serious. So the Romans apparently were so enchanted by this. Wow, what a sideshow. So the Romans put it to the test on him. 
Unfortunately, it didn't work in that circumstance. Apparently, there was something in the instructions that said you couldn't cut his head off. But there, there's lots of guys like this out running around. One guy said he could knock down walls like Jericho. Another guy said he could raise the dead. And so you, you can see the desperation of people in this. And you also can see, are Jesus' miracles things that he's showing off? I mean, what does he say most of the time after he performs a miracle to people? Don't tell anybody. Which is exactly the opposite of what these other nut jobs uh, were, were out doing. So we have this movement, about 6,000 we're told, uh, strong. It's, it's, it's probably the largest block of Judaism that Jesus will encounter in uh, Judea proper, but in, in Jerusalem. And as Jesus has shown us over and over, no group of people are entirely evil. No group is entirely good. It matters the content of the heart. Now today we think, well, that's, of course that's true. But realize we're getting that from Jesus. Jesus reaches out and is kind and merciful to Romans. How can there be a good Roman? But Jesus showed us one. How can there be a good Samaritan? You know, these sort of dinosaurs left over from another age that are a mixed race. How can anything good come from Samaria? But Jesus shows us. How can anything good come from a sinner? Like a woman who is unclean permanently. It's like a Jew's imagination of nuclear waste, right? She's she's as untouchable as they come. And yet Jesus is merciful. And so now he's going to do it again. The Pharisees are all bad. There's no hope. All they're interested in is their laws. They're blind. They don't see. Except for some of them do. Let's take a look at John chapter 3. One of the leaders of the Pharisee movement is going to reach out to Jesus. After dark, one evening, a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to speak with Jesus. Now, we always think there's meaning that he comes at night. Um, Night in the ancient world before electrical lights were very different. Not that people didn't have parties and and visit people at night, but, uh, you know, Jewish law recognizes a crime committed during the day is different from a crime committed at night because you can't always tell. Uh, Things are different. If you've been in, traveled around the world and been outside in the third world at night, it's different. Uh, But what does he call Jesus? First thing he says, Rabbi, I cannot stress to you how important it is that mark of dedication. Um, This is not sarcasm. Um, People do not give this title to anybody. You know, you don't meet your son-in-law and call him Mr. President, right? Um, maybe you could if you're being very sarcastic, but um, this, this Nicodemus is recognizing Jesus, and he says, we, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Now, those are extraordinary words coming from, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, the Knesset, uh, he is uh, probably a rabbi. I, I don't 
I, I think Jesus is intimating that, although Jesus doesn't call him a rabbi for, for reasons I think we'll see in a minute. But uh, he certainly knows his scripture. And even if he's not been trained as a rabbi, he, he understands some of the prophecies that, Jesus, that Steve brought up. So that we know that God has sent you to teach us. Um, so that's him putting Jesus above him. That your interpretation of scripture is superior to mine. Pharisees do this for nobody. Uh, Maybe this is why he's coming at night. Your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. So he's looking for evidence, and he has found it. That Jesus is no regular rabbi. There is something else going on with him. And as much as we want to get after these, these guys... Please understand there is a heartfelt desire to serve God, to do what's best for their people, to honor scripture. It's their passion that has got them into trouble. They're not lazy or mean or or, or anything like that. So in this case, there is a genuine desire here. Uh, Not maybe that Jesus is such a great rabbi, although he's addressed that way, but it's the miracles There's this divine approval to you. I already sort of lay out there. They realize that Jesus is a rabbi plus. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's the Messiah. One of the things we have to hold clear in our mind is the Jews did not make the connection between Messiah and Son of God. These are two different things in their thinking. If you really want to get technical, they think there's two Messiahs. They think there's a son of David and there's a son of Joseph, which I giggle because which is Jesus? Both. So the prophecies that said he will be a son of Joseph, they were right. The prophecies that said he'd be a son of David, they're right. So this is a lot more technical than we sometimes give it uh, credit for. But he's made this polite, honoring uh, question to Jesus I think it's more pol- more than polite. Yeah, yeah. I-, I think it's it's like this guy's risking something by doing this, having this conversation with Jesus. There's a risk because of what has happened in the Gospels. Uh, he is he is staking some reputation on the line by even having this conversation. So I think I do think that there is some sort of real desire on Nicodemus's part to not let. His certainty blind him, right? And so I think he's moving into that territory. Now, I mean, I think it's a struggle for him, and we're going to see that. But I feel like when you read through John, Nicodemus, as much as he is struggling at this point, he finally lands in a place that all of us need to land. I had a earth-changing moment when I went back to grad school. So I went to seminary and did what most pastors do. And then after 10 years, I went back to a secular graduate school to study the ancient Near East, uh, my case specifically Egyptology. But I did a lot of work um, comparing Egyptian and Hebrew. So I had to take a lot of Hebrew. And I had a Israeli professor who, he, he did a good job. He would make fun of me constantly because I mispronounced everything. Uh, we Christians have a particular way we say things. And for Jews that speak Hebrew, it sounds very, very funny. So I went through about three years of being told, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. I mean, it, like we say Mount Zion, right? 
and they say Zion. So they're like, how do you get Zion? I'm like, because Z's in English, but it's not a Z. I know it's not. Anyway, so they, they do this to us. But he challenged me one day. He goes, you need to actually just sit down and read the Talmud, which is a joke because it's like 148 volumes. So you, you can't do it. But um, I took it to heart and started reading uh, as much as I could in sections. The Talmud is really like a garage sale. It's not in any kind of order that you would recognize as a book. You just sort of wander through it, and you find, oh, that's interesting, that's interesting. But anyway, um, you start listening to these rabbis' conversations, and almost at times they seem nonsensical. And I really, I would read these and think, this doesn't make any sense. And they, they ask this kind of question, and then another rabbi will respond this way. And it took me a while to realize that's exactly what Jesus does. Look at what Nicodemus has just said. He has, he's come asking about the miracles and the proof. And did you ever watch the old Godzilla movies? You know, when Godzilla would walk and there would be some other monster. And you know when you got to a certain angle, they were going to tear up the city, right? Godzilla and whatever robot monster. I mean, here it comes. When two rabbis sit down to have a scriptural conversation, you need to see Godzilla coming out. Because this is not just, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Hey, did you read about Mary's little lamb? Oh, I did. I mean, it, folks, it is not that. These are the best and the brightest in society having questions about the religion, their culture. It's huge. And these massive great minds will get into these tumbles with Jesus. And he does like this judo thing to them. And he'll give them the smackdown. And a lot of times we Christians, we, we, because we're just not familiar with how rabbis do this, um, they're, they're always sort of one step off, one step ahead. They're not going to give you the direct answer. They're going to give you something related to the answer it's leading to. Let me try to show you what Jesus does here. So Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you. Your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. Okay, that's the setup. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless you are born again, you can never sing the kingdom of God. What? What did you just do? I was just asking you, did God send you? I mean, a good answer would be, thank you, visit me, Nicodemus. I appreciate that. God did, in fact, send me the miracles I perform by the Holy Spirit, and I hope you'll join us. What's wrong with that answer? I mean, that's how normal people talk. But Jesus is suddenly on, unless you're born again, uh, you can never see the kingdom of God. What? Um, And in a sense, look at Nicodemus. Uh, What do you mean? (laughs) Uh, I hate to say it, but it was almost like a debate last night. Did you watch a certain debate where a, a certain presenter couldn't make logical connections? It's a little bit like that. Um, Where is Jesus going with this born again? Now, we've heard this so many times, it's almost cliche to us. We know the born again stuff. We, We know this is about baptism, where it's going. But we have to stop and realize is that Nicodemus knew this conversation too. The whole notion of being born again was not something that Jesus invented. In fact, as a Pharisee, Jesus, or Nicodemus would instantly know what he's talking about. And he would make these connections. I think why Jesus uses that word. Let me show you, if, if we have them, um, there should be a couple slides. 
talking in the Talmud, which when I talk about this, this is an ancient commentary developed by the rabbis to help people understand scripture. Okay. Uh, no, no worries. Uh, so basically, the Talmud says that when a Gentile wants to become a Jew, it's possible. But they have to go again through their, moder- their mother's water. So they go into what's called a mikvah. And I think we have a picture of that. Yes? Mikvahs are all over the places in Israel. Um, Jesus uses them frequently. The church does. These are ritual bathing pools that are a, if not daily, a weekly part of being a righteous Jew. So when you do particular things and you need to be cleansed, you would go into these rooms and um, most of the time they're they're covered because this is a, uh, you, you have to be naked. Um, and you go down, you walk down the steps, and the water covers your head. There are a lot of rules about this. You can imagine with the Pharisees. But one of the biggest is that it has to be living water. It cannot be cistern water. So in Hebrew, they, they think of them as two different things. There's dead water, which is water you capture from the rain in a barrel or something like that. Uh, irrigation canal uh, water, that's a no-no. But water that comes from a spring or a living uh, a river, the, the association they're making is if it's moving water, there's spirit in it. I know we don't make that connection, but if it's moving, it's like wind moving through it. So they say it's spiritual water. So they have to go through these uh, women after they give birth or after they menstruate, uh, men if they've touched a dead thing or after you have sex with your wife. I mean, it's very intimate. Um, before you go to the temple, you've got to, to go through these mikvahs. But there is a very special occasion in which a Gentile wants to be born again. So a Gentile would go down into this place, and it's the only time somebody else will be in the room with them. Uh, They'll go down into the water, and stop me if you've heard this, they die. And then they rise out of the water, born anew, now is a Jew, and that's why the Jews are there, because they're the new family welcoming this child into the world. The Talmud is full of references that when you come out, it's a word they use, born again. You are like a child. You are innocent. You are now part of the 12 tribes of Israel. You are now something new. So here Nicodemus is saying, tell us about yourself. We want to know if you're legit. And suddenly he goes to this. What? And Jesus is associating going through this conversion from a Gentile to become a Jew with the what? You've got to do this in order to what? To see the kingdom of God. The thing that they are looking for, the thing that we're looking for, the thing that Jesus teaches on more than anything else is this kingdom. And Jesus has now tied it to this ritual bath, this full change of identity. What does he mean? Well, certainly (laughs) the last person in the room that thought he needed to be born again was Nicodemus. Right? You know, the whole blinded by your own certainty thing? 
Being born again, I hope you didn't miss it, being born again is for who? For Gentiles, right? And so uh, I, think Nic- I, think, I think Nicodemus gets, I think he's in a good place because he's a, he absorbs that. Uh, most Pharisees, you could make the argument, would have stormed out of the, out of the room just like that. Like, I'm talking to the wrong person. You're the one that has the problem, not me. And so, so just notice what, how Nicodemus is absorbing this. And he's not running off. He's not getting offended, right? But he's allowing Jesus to words to do something here, right? Yeah, what do you mean? Exclaimed Nicodemus. I know you've heard tons of sermons on this. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? So he's saying, how can an old Pharisee like me, uh, why would I go through this? I have dedicated my life to applying scripture, to helping people discover how to be holy, to looking for the Messiah. That's why I'm here. What good would it be for me to change path now? Uh, this is, this, does, this doesn't compute. One of the things that they do when they discuss with each other that's really hard for us to get is they're referring to scriptures when they have these ex- exchanges. So it, it's sort of like if you've ever been insulted by an English person. If you've ever had an Englishman insult you, it takes you a few minutes, right? To realize, hey, hey, wait a minute, what did you just call me? I mean, we're Americans, we're blonde, we just, ah, I like you. But Brits, they're very subtle. You know, I've never seen anybody quite like you. Well, thank you, wait, what? So rabbis are very much that way. It, it takes a minute. And when you start talking about what it is to be a Jew, versus what it is to be a Gentile. There's that notion where, well, we Jews are the chosen. We're, we, we, we are the best. We are the Amsagula, the chosen people of God. We're to be the light of the world. But when you say that to another Jew, you know their own history. They, they, was Abraham a good and faithful man? Part of the time. Part of the time he was a raging coward. Yeah, yeah, Steve's right. Little, little, little. He gives his wife away to other men because he gets scared. How about the founder of Israel, man named Israel? Was he a good guy? Born Jacob. Yeah, he he was the guy that they called, frankly, a sissy. Um, he had very smooth skin and liked to stay inside the tent and cook with his mama. This is not good. Um, now, amazing things happen with these people, and God does powerful things. But if you really want to get into the details of who is this and who is that, Jesus is, is making these references. And you'll see him do it in just a minute about a snake on a pole, which usually whew, flies over our head, but Nicodemus would have gotten it. So Jesus gives him a little bit more. The truth is, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. So again, it sort of seems to be referring to this mikvah, but it's so much more. I mean, you go in the water, it's living water, and there is spirit. But it's not that the spirit is in the water, it's that the spirit is in here. 
So Pharisees are very good. You'll see sometimes, and I've heard the argument that these are pharisaical mikvahs versus general mikvahs, but you'll, you'll see the square and then you'll see almost, it looks like the hot tub to me. It's another square off of it. And archaeologists tell us this is the catch basin for the living water. So that the Pharisees are always very careful to make sure they have a reservoir of living water that's going in the full tank. But um, you're so careful to make sure the water is appropriate in the mikvah. But the water is a symbol of the spirit touching the person. And Jesus is doing what he always does to the Pharisees. You're so good at taking care of your tools but you forget the job we've got to do. I did not give you shovels so that you could take care of them. I gave you shovels so you could dig holes. You pray about the shovel, you clean the shovel, but you don't dig holes. I mean, in the sense he's saying that, you go in the mikvahs, um, but you, you don't connect. That water is perfect, but it's not going anywhere. Are we, You're on a roll, Pastor Kurt. All Keep right. rolling. <laughs> Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives new life from heaven. Now to sort of follow this argument, Nicodemus has laid out, we we acknowledge that you have power from heaven, but I'm really questioning what you're doing here, what power you have on earth. So Jesus, in a rabbinic way, is touching on, I acknowledge your point here, but I'm going to show you, you actually are lying. You don't acknowledge my power in heaven because you don't want to change things here. I'm jumping ahead of the argument. But, so don't be surprised at my statement that you must be born again. Just as you hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Now, of course, in Hebrew... Ruach, spirit, wind is the same word. So when God breathes into us, it is wind, it is spirit. And if you think about it, it's a brilliant way for an ancient person to describe a soul, a spirit. It's something that affects the world around us. I mean, we can see the effects of wind, but we can't see it. Um, you can't really touch wind. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful way of, of describing our soul. It obviously has a huge impact on us daily, hourly, minute, but we can't see it. So Jesus is really questioning him. You say your focus is to see these miracles, to bring God's word to life, but you no more understand what God is doing than you understand which way the wind is going to blow. Now, it's interesting. Well, I won't say that. Um, What do you mean? (laughs) So if we're keeping score, Nicodemus is losing. Now, rabbis always ask questions, right? But what do you mean (laughs) is, is not raising the ante. What Nicodemus should be doing is quoting another scripture. To get back to Steve's point, there is some genuine searching here. He's, he's not just playing ping pong with Jesus. He really, he, he, wants, he wants to know more. So this is interesting inside of Jesus here in verse 10. You are a respected Jewish teacher. So Jesus just called him a rabbi. And yet you don't understand these things. 
So that's kind of a slap. Uh, You're supposed to be learned. And yet, the focus on what heaven is doing, the focus on what the Spirit is doing, is not something that concerns you. And I, I hate to be this way, um, but it, it's, it's very illustrative. Um, it, the last thing Christians need to do, I think, is be anti-Semitic. Um, these are our brothers in faith, and we, we need to, to support them. But there's this raging argument going on right now in Judaism among the or, ultra-Orthodox. They have uh, prayer shawls that they wear, and the prayer shawls have tallit on the side. And so these are uh, little wool strings that have uh, knots at the end. Well, Deuteronomy says you should have one that's blue and one that's white. And so they have variation combos. But the instructions that the Pharisees know for creating the blue ones are very specific. It comes from a snail that comes out of the Mediterranean. So when the Jews were scattered around the world, they couldn't get the snail anymore. So the rabbis said, forget the blue. I know the Bible says wear the blue, but we can't do that anymore. So God will understand we're just going to have the white. Well, now they're back in Israel, and there's a company that's harvesting these snails. And so they can make the blue again. There is such a ferocious fight over should we have blue and white talit tassels, or should we just have white? And to me, this is what Jesus was talking about. Okay, the talit is something you wear every day to remind you to stop and pray to God. That's the function of it. The fact that it was blue stood out as something really, really important. Blue in the ancient world is, is incredibly rare because you've got to go kill a snail and squeeze it and do all this stuff. So it, it, it was a huge important thing. But they get caught up. Should it be white? Should it be blue? Now, to me, it's just a modern version of, of how silly this argument gets. Do we Christians ever get this way? Yeah, yeah, we do. And so in a real sense, as we sit here, we need to see ourselves kind of in the seat of Nicodemus. And God really challenging us, saying, all right, you say I'm the son of God, and you say I have all this authority, but do you really listen to me here on earth about your practical life? What I'm telling you is that things have gone so bad for you, you probably should start over. And the thing I want you to start over with is making sure that you are connected to God. There has to be the spiritual connection, period. Even if you have to throw everything and start over, you've got to have this born again experience. So think about our Christian walk. We're raised in the church, right? I was baptized um, as an infant before I went home, actually, from the hospital. I came from the hospital and went to church and played baby Jesus, like all good uh, Methodist kids do, right? And then um, I got baptized. So have I made this, this real connection I'm not trying to get anybody to question their baptism. What I'm really trying to do is have you hear the depths of Jesus' connection. All of the Bible study, 
all of the attempt to go, do God's word, all of the attempt to keep our good Christian tradition doesn't matter a hill of beans if our soul has not connected to God. Period. End of story. That's hard if you really process it. And it was for Nicodemus. And to his credit, he didn't freak out on him. Nicodemus will stay with him through this. So let's... Oh, you want to... No. Okay. I think I take this. Okay. Okay. All right. Here we go. So uh, he gets to verse 13. And... uh, Jesus is continuing to to gently lead him. And so no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, uh, the Son of Man. And so you're curious, is is Nicodemus catching on that whenever Jesus says this, he's talking about himself? And just know that there's so much. I mean, the kingdom of God, uh, the Son of Man, there's just so much that gets uploaded in Nicodemus' mind when he says so so y'all been with us for a while. So what gets uploaded when you hear the words, the, the phrase, son of man? Chapter and verse. Daniel chapter 7. Right? Very important. It's such an important verse. in the, in for the, uh, the New Testament draws on it all the time. Uh, so Daniel chapter 7. Uh, they see the high exalted one, high lifted up. And then there is another one. The Son of Man uh, that comes and takes his place right alongside uh, the the Almighty One. So, and they they're looking. This is the this is the the Messiah figure, right? And so they're looking for him. And so, but then, so it's interesting. So John three sixteen, the most famous verse in all the Bible. <laughs> Does anybody ever know which one is right before it? And everybody says no. The most ignored. Right. Verse fourteen. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world. Now, what is all that about? Well, right, just right in your, in your margin there, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. And uh, we can you can go back and read it, but I'll just give you the highlights. So they are the uh, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. That's what the Book of Numbers is all about. It's like one big road trip, right? <laughs> They're wandering in the wilderness, and they start to run out of steam. Or how about run out of faith? And the scripture says that the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. As Pastor Kurt was saying, the most important thing is to stay connected to God. And when they were on that road trip, where was God? Right in the midst of them, right in the tabernacle, right there. And they were done. They spoke against God. They had lost faith in God, were speaking against. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Basically, they're detesting their freedom. 
They're detesting their life in connection, in proximity to God. All that's just being called into question. And so they have lost their connection to God as their circumstances prove challenging. Instead of calling on God, they spoke against. And so the Pharisees, the other groups in Israel, they're under the oppression of the Romans. How many of them were on the verge of giving up on God? Right? It's just... And so this is what Jesus, Jesus is using all of this. He's pulling all the way back from numbers to say, Nicodemus, y'all are just like the Israelites in the wilderness. You're not who you think you are. You've built up such this, this wall around the law, you've lost connection to the, the one that the law points to. Right? And in essence, what is he inviting Nicodemus to do? So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Well, what happened in the wilderness is that snakes showed up. They're back in numbers. Snakes showed up and started biting people and killing them. And uh, so Moses cries out to God, and God says, Look, go and put a serpent on a pole and lift it up and anybody who looks at the pole with the snake on it, what's going to happen to them? They'll be healed. So and not, not the words in the text, but what he, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, here. Look here. Look here and see me. Stay with me. I'm going to be lifted up, right? And He's not going to be lifted up as a snake, but he's going to be lifted up on a cross. Stay here with me, and you will see the kingdom of God. It's not, when you die, you'll go to heaven. That's not what the kingdom of God here is in John. That's maybe a little smidgen of it. But it is, you will see how you, you will see how the world was made, and you will be free. Yeah, so sort of follow, make, make the connection. The serpents came because the people were unfaithful. The That's serpents right. came because they were sinful. So in essence, to, to heal them, they had to look at the results of their sin, the serpent. And in that act of repentance, look what we have done, O Lord. I mean, they've been delivered from Egypt. The plagues, the Passover, I mean, it's been, it's been everything. This is their defining moment as people, and Jesus is reminding, in our defining moment, we were terrible. So we had to look at our sin in order to be delivered. That's going to happen again. Look at the sin we're going to perform against the one you said God had sent, the one who has miracles. You're going to kill him. In order to be born again, you're going to have to look at the result of your sin and connect again with God. For God so loved the world that he gave. Right? So doesn't it just all of a sudden just become so much more rich when we read all of this together in context and it's not just something that just got dropped in here but it's like Jesus uses this story of unfaithfulness to point out the unfaithfulness in Nicodemus and people like him and to say there's a new day ahead, but you got to stay here. I 
Well, we got it through about half of what we needed to, but that's okay. <laughs> Poor Nicodemus, do you think he took notes? Wait, wait, what? Um, are there questions? Are we tracking? We probably should put a finger here. We need to probably come back and talk about our only begotten a little bit. But Well, let's uh, talk a little bit more about baptism, just real okay. quick. And just... just Kurt and I, we get to gripe at each other a little bit, gripe at each other a little bit when we're preparing these studies. And and and, and I'll just say it plain, because none of y'all are guilty of this. Uh, but, like, we will have parents that will bring their children uh, to be baptized, right? Because that's what you are supposed to do, right? And you'll talk with them through baptism. I have them read Daniel Harris has a wonderful little book about baptism. And I had had them all read Daniel's book. And I asked, do you have questions? Some people will come in with all sorts of questions. And and, uh, so I'll say, you know, this is what this is all about. Um, You basically laying this child in the crosshairs of God's grace. Uh, you You can't possibly teach your child everything there is to know about God. You are, we are initiating this child into the life of the church. You're making the statement that you need all of these other people to help you raise this child in such a way so they will accept God's grace for themselves. And I would say, after, and I lay it out to them passionately. And I'm like, are y'all good with this? And what will they say? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't see them again until they've had their next child. And you giggle about it. But they've gone Nicodemus on us. Yeah, all that really matters is that we do the deed. That's really what matters. No. What matters is you arrange your life in such a way where you show your child that staying connected to God is the absolute most important thing that you can do with your life. Right? Well said. Right? And so I just want you to hear that, that that happens. It like really happens. And that if you have kids and grandkids and your kids are about to go uh, have their, uh, their kids baptized, talk to them about it. And say, hey, are you really serious about this? Uh, the most uh, egregious, you might say, example of this, uh, in Hollywood anyway, uh, familiar with the movie The Godfather? Do you know how that movie ends? It ends with a baptism. And the child is getting baptized while the father of the child has put out hits on about five different people uh, in the city. And they're killing all of these people while this guy is reaffirming his renunciation of sin. <laughs> right? It's like, what is happening in this movie? And, and, and that's not the kind of people we want to be. Baptism is so important. We believe it's important, but it's it's not an end in and of itself. It is always one of the means of grace to help us to regularly connect with God. And uh, 
just something that we wanted to share with yeah, you. Yeah, it's it's a tool. Right. You know, our, our desire is not to have everybody baptized, all about baptized. I mean, yes, it's a tool. It's an important tool. We'll always do it. But it's designed to have you connect with God. If you've been baptized, I think one of the best spiritual tools you can use is this snake on a pole. Look at your life honestly. Take a hard look at it and see what your sins have produced. Look Look at it. And then go to Jesus about it. Don't turn away from it. Don't pretend it didn't happen. Don't pretend that we're perfect. Don't pretend that I don't do the... Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Christ is not a theory for our salvation. Christ is a real part of trying to save who we really are. So if you can look at yourself in the mirror and see what have I done... We're not all evil, but we're not all good either. And we've got to stay connected spirit to spirit to God where everything else is meaningless. Any other questions, comments? Right, let's pray. Father God, we don't want to be Nicodemus. We thank you that you told us his story his heartfelt desire to know more, but the hard realization that when we ask you to know more, you're not just going to tell us what we already know. You're going to push us to a place that truly will change us. Father God, it is my prayer for all of us tonight that we would, Spirit, to your Holy Spirit, connect with you. In your words, let heaven begin here tonight. The eternity that we will spend with you should begin here in daily life. When we're at our best in praising you, Father, may you be there. When we're in the depths and in the pit that we've dug and hide from all others, you're with us. Help us to learn all of the tools that we can, that you've given us, to be closer to you. We know they help. But above all, may we know the sound of our shepherd's voice. May the wind that first gave us a soul be the breath that breathes into our life. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Good night, everyone.